I love that intro video. I was the popcorn string kid when I was little. Any popcorn string people? Oh, yeah, that was fun. It brings back all kinds of memories. Well, good to have you all here today, folks. Anybody fighting the head cold thing going around? I'm obviously part of that club as well here today, so please put up with my voice if you don't mind, and and I'll be uh, sipping tea over the course of the sermon. Uh, By five sermons, I'll be sipping enough tea probably to get a caffeine buzz going (laughs) by seven o'clock. Be preaching like John Chalinor in no time, right? Uh, You might want to come back at seven o'clock just to experience that. That is a a once-in-a-lifetime moment. You know, there's something really unfair about this because uh, ever since I moved to Prescott, I've, I've heard about that courthouse lighting day and the ceremony. Oh, it's just an amazing, magical moment. And but both the last two years, I was preaching the weekend of courthouse lighting and we had services Saturday night. So guess what? I couldn't go the last two years. I began to see it as a conspiracy. And Ron and John were keeping me from that magical moment. And then, uh, no lie, when we changed the services to Sunday night, one of my first thoughts was, nothing's going to keep me from the courthouse lighting ceremony. And even though they put me on this weekend again, I thought, ah, I'm going to go anyway. I get to go to the courthouse. And then I got sick. So I didn't get there last night. And I, I'm, I'm 0 for 3 on the courthouse lighting ceremonies. Those of you who got there, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> oh, good. Yes, thank you. I'm not bitter. No, not at all. Uh, next year. There is next year for courthouse lighting. You know, we are... Uh, yeah, welcome to an Advent time in which we are recognizing, as David said, that you can't really just jump into Christmas. It doesn't do it justice. Uh, it's worth so much more preparation than that. You know, why would we really expect that we could, for instance, we have a list of things to do. See, what do I have to do in the month of December? Well, I've got to buy bread. I've got to pay the bills. I've got to take the kids to soccer. I have to celebrate the birth of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I've got to fix the sprinklers. You know, I, I mean, if, if we go into Christmas with that kind, it's just a list of things to do. I've got to check a box because that's what December is like. What a shame. What a shame to miss out on what it could be. You know, I, I learned years ago the importance of preparing for Christmas, that the Advent season matters so much. I love what I read this morning, that Advent is to Christmas what Lent is to Easter, that, that each of them create the season in which, if we commit ourselves to it, it can really prepare us to have a, a more wonderful celebration. I learned how important that was when I was in college. I was in Southern California, Cal State Northridge, attending my church, very actively involved in my church. In fact, this one Christmas, it was a perfect storm of, of, of pressure. For some reason, the final exam schedule at my university meant my last final was on December 22nd. So I was writing papers and taking tests. In addition to that, I was part of the church youth choir, and we were singing in malls all over the San Fernando Valley. In addition to that, my church had put on for several years a performance of Scrooge's Christmas Carol. Dickens' story that we recreate out here. You can see the buildings going up. But we did a, a theater production of it in which the, uh, we had 14 performances uh, from early December to, to, to mid-December. I played the role of Peter Cratchit, Tiny Tim's big brother. I auditioned for the role of Tiny Tim, but for some reason they opted not to, <laughs> not to put me in that role. I said I wasn't qualified. I'm not sure what they were trying to say by that. But anyway, so I had 14 performances. I had exams. I had papers. I had singing. And I can tell you, honestly, I still remember in January, I remember saying, where did Christmas go? I missed it. And I was so mad. Because I love Christmas. I love making the popcorn strings. I love the carols. I love everything about it. And that one year, it was gone. The reason was, I had let the season drive my celebration rather than me driving my schedule. 
And so I didn't have time to reflect. I didn't celebrate Advent. I just tried to jam Christmas, crowbar it in to a busy life. And friends, that will happen over and over again unless we get intentional about preparing our hearts for the holidays. And that's what we're doing here in these few weeks. That's why it's on the screen behind me. We want to be home for the holidays. We want our souls to find a place to rest so that the celebration of Jesus means something to us. So once we decide, like I did years ago, I've got to be intentional about that. Next question is, well, what's that look like? How do we do that? What's required? And more importantly, do we have to guess? Do we have to guess how to get our hearts ready for Jesus and to celebrate his coming? Well, good news is we don't have to guess. As in all that is true of the Christian life, God's word gives us instruction on this because we aren't the first people who had to be prepared for the arrival of Jesus. His first coming, his, his birth 2,000 years ago, God went out of his way to get the people ready. And if God had a man and a plan 2,000 years ago to prepare his people for the arrival of their Messiah, just maybe that man and that plan have something to teach us today, 2,000 years later. So we're going to spend some time looking at that plan. You see, God knew his people weren't, could not simply jam the arrival of Jesus into their schedules. The, the soil had to be prepared. And there is one person who appears significantly in the birth narratives in, in the gospel, especially the gospel of Luke. He is all over the place in Luke chapter 1 as the birth of Jesus begins to be described, but he doesn't appear in any Christmas carols. You won't get a single Christmas card with this man's picture or name on it. He's a forgotten character of the birth of Jesus, but we're not going to forget him today. We're going to look at him. His name is John. His arrival was predicted centuries before because God told his people, you're going to need preparation when Messiah finally comes. He was born supernaturally in a way similar to that Abraham and, and, and Sarah had their son Isaac. We'll talk about that in a minute. In Luke chapter 1, more than half of the verses talk about this guy. Not Mary, not Joseph, not even Jesus. John, who later became known as John the Baptist, becomes this very significant person because he was sent to prepare the way. He came to get people ready for Jesus. And guess what? That's our goal too, right? That's what Advent is for. Let's get ready for Jesus. So today, we're going to learn from his mission, from the way he carried it out, and we're going to ask ourselves, might there be something for our Advent today? Well, the answer, of course, is yes. And here's the big idea for today. If you leave here with one idea, please make it be this one. Our souls are home for the holidays when we examine our hearts and are on our knees before the newborn king. Lord, would you make that happen today here in this room? Maybe some for the first time on their knees before the newborn king. Lord, we want to celebrate the arrival of Jesus in a way that you find worthy. Show us what that is in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to look first at the model in the Gospels and then see how it works in our Advent today. If you've got Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 1. I already mentioned that's where we're going to camp for most of our time here today. Luke chapter 1 begins the story of Jesus. Uh, Luke of the four Gospels is the most systematic and chronological of the authors. He says that at the beginning. He says, I, I set out to write a very detailed, comprehensive description. And he jumps right in, not to the birth of Jesus, but the first character he mentions is a man named Zechariah. Zechariah appears in Luke chapter 1, verse 5. I want to summarize 5 through 10 before we look at some other verses. 
What we see is this man, Zechariah, served in the temple. He was a Levite. He was part of the tribe of the people of Israel who took care of the sacrifices in the temple. And, and he and his wife were godly people. They loved the Lord. They were obedient. They were holy. And they were childless. And they were too old to have any children. Some of you in this room know the struggle of infertility. Uh, and you're not alone. Characters in Scripture do the same. In fact, Abraham and Sarah, as I already mentioned, the father of Israel, were in the same exact place as Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. We'll talk about that again in a minute. So we've got this man, and, and he's chosen by lot, by, by, uh, by casting of, well, I don't know how to describe lot. Anyway, he's chosen to go inside the temple building and burn the incense at the moment of the sacrifice. We have to understand this is a big deal. You see, there were so many people doing what Zechariah did, and only one person at a time could go in there. There were people who never in their entire lives of service won that privilege. And if you won it, you only did it once and you were done. You were not eligible to do it again. So this is a big deal for Zechariah. So he goes into the temple as the people of Israel are waiting outside and they're praying. And then this incredible moment takes place. We're going to look at Luke chapter 1. Start reading at verse 5, I think. No, I'm sorry, Luke 11. Luke 1, 11. Then at 8, I'm going to drink some tea. That'll help a little bit. How about that? Ah, all better. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. He did not expect anyone to be there, okay? So this is usually a pretty lonely task, but it's an amazing task. And boom, he walks in. There's somebody standing there. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Of course he would be. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Isn't that a great sentence? Your prayer. Aren't you glad? Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he'll be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. This is the who. Who is this man who's going to take on this task to get the people ready? Well, first of all, notice that this man brings echoes, as I mentioned, of Abraham and Sarah back in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that story, you might know that back in Genesis chapter 12, when God looks out on the world and says there's a rebellion going on, but I, I'm not surprised by it. I had a plan for it. I'm going to make it right. And the way he makes it right is he chooses one couple to make a family out of them, to make a nation out of that family, to pour himself into them and make them the nation of Israel. Abraham and Sarah were the couple that he chose. But like uh, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were old and had no children. So one of the first issues Abraham had when God said, hey, here's what I'm going to make out of you, Abraham. He, well, how are you going to do that, God? We got no kids and we're too old. And God said, trust me, I'm going to give you a son. And that son will have children and their children will have children. And you will be a nation nobody can count one day, the nation of Israel. And sure enough, God came through on his promise. He made people who were too old to have children, a woman past menopause, supernaturally conceive a child. And any Israelite who read this story we just read would flash right back to that. And it's as if God is shining a spotlight on that moment in the Old Testament. And he's saying, I'm true to my word. Because what he said to Abraham that day in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And through you, through that nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed one day. My solution to your problem 
will come through your family. And now, thousands of years later, God's saying, I'm doing it. I made the promise. I'm fulfilling my promise. I'm true to my word. And Zechariah, you get to be part of that fulfillment. So he says, trust me, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. It's time. The wait is over. The blessing of all nations is coming, and you get to be involved in it. You're going to have a son whose name will be John. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, much rejoicing at his birth. Main line is he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He's going to need that filling of the Holy Spirit. We just got done with a series on the Holy Spirit, remember? And filling means to be under the control of God, to be empowered by him, to do what pleases him. And this baby, this John, from before he was born, was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he would need that because he has a mission to accomplish. From the who, let's shift to the what. That mission is made clear in Luke chapter 1, verse 16. Here's what this boy is going to do. He'll bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. Here it comes. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What is the mission of this man, John the Baptist? Well, God's saying, my people aren't ready yet. The ground is too hard. They're not ready to hear the news. They're not ready to meet my son. They're not ready to respond the way I need them to. So, like a gardener who prepares the soil before putting in the seed, I'm going to send someone to get them ready. Some things need to happen in their hearts so that when my son Jesus arrives, they can respond the way they ought to. He will go on before the Lord. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Friends, isn't that what we want? Here in Advent, isn't isn't that what it means to talk about being home for the holidays? That we want to get our hearts ready in these next three weeks so that when that day comes, we can celebrate in a way that will bring us joy and bring God honor, will change our lives and the lives of those around us. We need, like Israel did 2,000 years ago, to be prepared. Because if we're not, the soil in our hearts is, is too hard. The things of Jesus will just bounce off of us like they did when I was 19. And I didn't make time. I didn't get my heart ready. And I just whisked right by. John's mission was to provide for the people what they needed. And guess what? We need that same mission accomplished in our hearts today. That's what the angel said. But Zechariah recognized that mission because he went on. Let me bounce back first. I'm not going to read that verse yet. Click back. Click back. You guys, click back. There we go. All right. (laughs) Don't try this at home, kids. I went to seminary to learn how to do this. And I'm drinking more tea. That was, those are the words of the angel, but Zechariah was going to actually buy into the whole program. Let me summarize what happens in the next few verses. When he, when he, when he hears the word of Gabriel, that's the Gabriel, angel Gabriel, he doesn't believe it. And he says, well, how can this be? We're too old. And, and for some reason, in this case, God's, uh, the angel says, okay, well, because you don't trust me, you're not going to be able to talk for a while. So he comes out of the temple, and the people are waiting for him, and and he can't talk. They know something big has happened, but they don't know what, because he can't tell them. And his muteness lasts for months. But along the way, during those months, his wife Elizabeth does conceive. God is true to his word. A miraculous baby is prepared to be born. Uh, Gabriel visits Mary 
in Nazareth and has his famous interaction with her in which he tells her, by the way, you're going to be the one that John, John prepares the way for. Your son will be the Messiah. They have that conversation. We have a couple of verses later, Mary and Elizabeth get together because they're related. And in utero, John reacts to the presence of his Messiah in Mary in utero. It's just an amazing moment in Luke chapter 1, and, and, and Elizabeth celebrates that. Three months later, John the Baptist is born, and there's a naming ceremony where they have to decide what to call this new baby. And they turn to Elizabeth, because Zechariah still can't talk, and, and they say, well, what should we name him? And she says, his name is John. And they say, there's no one in your family named John. We don't do that. What's wrong with you? And then they turn to the husband. Right, ladies? That happens a lot, right? Uh, let's see what the husband says, right? But in this case, the husband, Zechariah, takes a, takes a, a plate and a whatever, pen or something, his name is John, in obedience to the command of the angel. And in that moment, his voice is restored, he can speak, he can sing, and he can pray, and he does. All those things. And he writes a beautiful psalm that I invite you to read later on. It dominates the end of Luke chapter 1. I just want to look at a couple of verses in that psalm where it's clear that Zechariah understands and buys into the mission. You, my child, he says to his baby, will be called a prophet of the Most High. You will speak to the people on behalf of God. And you'll be getting the way ready for the Lord himself. You will go on before the Lord, verse 76, to prepare the way for him. Zechariah knew that because that's what the angel had said. So now we've got the what. We've got the who, we've got the what. Who, John the Baptist, what, prepare the people to respond to the Lord the way they should. What's remaining is the how. How is he going to do that? How is he going to till the soil? How is he going to prepare the way? How is he going to get the people ready so when this Jesus begins his ministry, people are prepared to say, yes, Jesus, we're glad you're here. Well, Zechariah gives a hint of that in the very next verse, verse 76. To give his people, God's people, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. The first part of the how Zechariah acknowledges that you're going to get people to know that forgiveness for their sins is available because their God is merciful. Friends, 2,000 years ago, no one had any illusions about their sin. They, they had a list of commandments, lists of command, hundreds of commandments that they were accountable for in the Old Testament. And their leaders had added hundreds more. And they lived in the constant awareness that they fell short of those expectations. That the bar is way up here, and they are way down here. And that's why they had to come to that temple constantly, bringing a sacrifice, bringing something that would pay the price for their sins. Because God had set that system up generations earlier. So the smoke rising from the temple constantly of the burned sacrifices was a constant reminder that they need forgiveness. But because they had to come over and over again with sacrifices, they knew this is all temporary. The sacrifice I make today doesn't cover me tomorrow. I've got to bring another one tomorrow because I'm still messing up. I'm still blowing it. But the good news that John the Baptist was going to proclaim was your God is merciful. And there's going to be a new, there's already been a level of forgiveness available. The temple sacrifices provided that. But there's a new kind of forgiveness coming because there's a new kind of sacrifice coming. Not one that would have to be repeated over and over and over again. Not one that would drive home to us constantly how far we fall short. But a sacrifice that would wash us clean 
Because our God takes delight in expressing his mercy. Friends, isn't it good news that a holy God and a powerful God is also merciful? Imagine if he wasn't. Who could stand? Who would survive? He's already shown that throughout the Old Testament, but now he's really going to show it. There's a new kind of Lamb of God coming. That was the first part of the, of the, of the how, was John's going to make his people know that. And then the second part of the how is a very important word. In the book of Matthew, we're going to bounce there just for a second, John the Baptist appears out of nowhere. There's no lead-in, there's no explanation of him really. Luke covers all of his story. But in Matthew, he just appears, and what's he doing? In those days, John the Baptist, Matthew 3, came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the how. How does the ground get prepared so Jesus' message would land on fertile soil? The word repent. Friends, that's a, that's a powerful word, but it's a church word, isn't it? It's a, church, it's a word you don't hear much outside of these kinds of walls. And if you haven't spent much time in church over the years, maybe it's a word you haven't heard much before. And that's too bad because it's a really good word. But maybe you grew up in a church that pounded you with that word constantly to the point where you're allergic to it. (laughs) You say, I hate that word. I got tired of that word a long time ago. And that's too bad too because it's a good word. It's a word John the Baptist gave... The God gave John the Baptist to get the soil ready. It's also the word Jesus used when he began preaching. When he began preaching, his first words were the same. If John used it and Jesus used it, maybe there's something in it we need. So if you've been allergic to it, can I invite you to work hard to put that aside a little bit? And let me examine it with you. Let's embrace it and see what is it in there that I need at Advent. What is in there that will prepare the soil of my heart to be ready to celebrate Jesus the way I should. Well, the word simply means this. It means a change of mind. It means to no longer think the way you used to. And something radical happens to change your perspective and your worldview. And because our behaviors are based on what we think, repentance, a change of mind, also creates a change of behavior. We don't do what we used to do because we don't think what we used to think. That is what repentance means. No more than that, but no less than that as well. You know, when I was in France, uh, we lived there for 10 years. There's a cultural tradition in France that's unique to France, I think. I've never seen it anywhere else. People who are driving through a town and are unfamiliar with where they're going, rather than stop at a gas station to ask for directions, like my dad pretended to when I was growing up, <laughs> okay. rather than pull off into some business and ask them, hey, I'm trying to get here, can you help me? In France, cars pull over to the sidewalk and ask a pedestrian for help. Strangest thing I ever saw. I still remember the first time it happened to me. I'm walking along in a town south of Paris. I'm, I'm in language school, barely learning how to speak French. This car pulls up next to me, and the guy says, do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And I said, get away from me. (laughs) I don't know who you are. I didn't know this tradition at the time. But as time went on, I began to really appreciate it. Because it was very helpful. Anybody was expected to be ready to help you if you're in trouble. I hope that pops your bubble of what you think of the French, by the way. Uh, I I defend them once in a while because the impressions of them are, 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 are overblown. So I learned over time to welcome that moment, to give directions, and even to take advantage of it as a driver... When I'd be lost and I'd be needing help, I'd pull over to some French guys, my French improved, and I'd say, excuse me, I'm trying to get someplace, could you help me? I said it in French, of course, but I, I need to go somewhere. And, and invariably, my French guide 
would say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, you're, you're going the wrong way. And I'd say, I knew that. <laughs> That's why I stopped you. He would say, no, you need to turn around and go that way. And about half the time, they would say, if you don't mind, I'll get in the car and I'll guide you there. I hope that pops your bubble of the French as well. All right, it happened all the time. I can't count how many times that happened. And it was so great because it's such a picture of repentance. Because my chosen guide would tell me, you need to change your mind. You think this is the right way. That's not the right way. That's the right way. And once you change your mind, guess what? Your behavior changes too because what we do is based on what we think, right? So when I realize, oh, I need your help. I need a guide. I need someone to direct me. He then gets in the car and guides me. And what I have done is I've changed my mind and changed my behavior because I've changed my mind. I've repented. And friends, that's a picture of what John the Baptist's mission was. But he didn't wait for someone to pull over and ask him. He was standing in the middle of the road saying, you're all going the wrong way. Repent. Change your mind. You need this message. And so do we. So do we. Because we're going the wrong way. Constantly going the wrong way. I, I love this definition of repentance from a theologian named J.I. Packer. It says, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. Do you like that? I like that. Let's read it aloud together. Why not? Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. See, John the Baptist called people to do that because he was saying, you know what? The kingdom is near because the king has come. Stop acting as if he wasn't here. Stop thinking like you used to because everything changes when the king is born. Stop being your own guide because you're going the wrong way and the king is willing to be your guide. Everything changes when the king comes. And John the Baptist said, the kingdom of God is near. Change your mind and be ready to receive him. So friends, that was the message 2,000 years ago that God used to get his people ready for the, the Messiah. What about us? How's that apply to our advent? Well, same three words, the who, the what, and the how. In this case, the who is us. The what is, how do we prepare ourselves to be a people prepared for the Lord? The way God went out of his way to give a man and a plan 2,000 years ago. We need to do the same. Our goal is the same, and the how, yeah, can be the same as well. The how is we need to repent. Again, simply means to change your mind about you, about God, about you and God, about Jesus and how much you need him. Unrepentant people don't pull over to the side of the road and ask for help. They think, I'm convinced I'm going the right way. Repentant people say, I need some help. I'm on the wrong path. And we need to be those kinds of people. And happily, we have a God who's ready to respond when we pull over our lives and ask him for directions. And we realize, I'm going the wrong way, and I need to turn around. I love this picture of repentance that I want to share with you now. And then I'm going to give you a chance to practice it. I want you to imagine that we are making a movie about life in the Middle Ages. In our movie, there's a, a war going on between rival kingdoms. And in my movie, I drink some tea before I say anything else. As a, 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 a war, active war, people dying. 
And the hero of our movie is a knight fighting for one kingdom. And he realizes, I'm a fool. I'm fighting for the wrong king in the wrong way. And I'm fighting against this good, noble king. His people love him. Our people hate our king. I'm risking my life, not just for nothing, but for something that's wrong. I need to change kingdoms. I need to switch sides. But he knows he's got a problem. He says he's guilty of treason by the laws of that kingdom. He's committed war crimes. He's worthy of death by their laws. But he's hoping for mercy. So he sends a message to the, through enemy lines requesting an audience with the king. And to his pleasant surprise, he gets a message back. Meet us in a clearing in the forest tomorrow at noon. And so the next morning, our knight mounts up and goes clopping through the forest. And he knows this could be an ambush because this war. And if they kill him, he has no grounds to complain. But he's hoping, again, to be welcomed. And sure enough, he gets to this clearing, and there's a meadow, and there's a throne out in the meadow, and there's a path from the edge of the woods to the throne, lined by enemy knights, and seated on the throne is the king with whom he's come to do business. Our knight dismounts and walks along this path, and when he gets to the king, we decide we want this scene to unfold without any words being spoken, just nonverbal gestures. The first thing our knight does... You know what it is, right? He kneels. He bows. Knights don't bow before just anybody. And in that gesture, he's saying a lot without saying a word. He's saying, I've been wrong. I've changed my mind about you and about me and my connection to you. I, I, I thought I should resist you. Now I bow before you. I, I, I thought I should fight you. Now I submit to you. I've changed my mind about you and my need for you. And then our king, our knight, takes a sword and hands it gently, hilt first, because he's surrounded by knights, right? Hilt first to this king. And when the king grasps the sword and taps him on both shoulders, a transaction has taken place. Mercy has been expressed, hasn't it? As a man who came to the clearing as a condemned rebel, worthy of death, becomes a citizen of the kingdom who puts himself at the service of the king. He's changed his mind. And his behavior changes in light of it. Friends, the scripture tells us that every human being ever born is born in a rebel kingdom. We're born sure we're on the right path, aren't we? We're born sure that we know better than anybody else. No one's the boss of me. We're born with a mindset that says, I am my own guide. And somewhere along the way, every human being needs to have a clearing in the forest moment before the king in which we bow the knee and hand our lives over. That's what repentance means, friends. Don't make it more than it is, but don't make it less than it is. And it should be a normal part of the Christian life because we're always learning new things about him that expand our, our awareness and new things about us and seeing things in us that we need to change our mind about. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But you get into that kingdom through a once-in-a-lifetime clearing in the forest moment on our knees before the king. And I want to give you a chance to do that right now. If what I've just described sounds like something you need to do, especially as you get ready to really prepare your heart for Advent, friends, you cannot celebrate the newborn king with an unrepentant heart. It won't happen. So if you've never done this, I want to walk you through a little prayer right now where you can, where you're seated, have that transaction, become that forgiven sinner because of the mercy of your God by confessing your sins and putting your life in his hands. 
Everyone bow your heads with me, would you? I'm just going to pray a prayer. If, if this describes something you think you need to do today for the first time, feel free to pray it quietly along with me. Lord Jesus, I'm so glad for who you are, but I'm, I'm so crushed at who I am. I know I'm a sinner. I, I know I fail. I know I fall so far short of what you deserve and what you've asked of us as human beings. I lay that sin before you. I confess it to you, and I'm so glad I find mercy with you. I'm so glad you died to pay the price for those sins. Lord, would you now take my life, mold it and shape it and make it more and more what you would be proud of, what you want me to be? Lord, would you change me? Would you help me to live my life in light of the fact that I am a citizen of the kingdom of God? Lord, teach me what that means. I can't wait to spend the rest of my life learning it. Friends, if that's a prayer that you just prayed with our eyes still closed, would you just slip your hand up in the air just so we can know and celebrate? Thank you. There are hands all over the room. We're excited about that. Lord, thank you for these folks who've taken this step. Would you show us, all of us, what it means to live out that kind of change of mind and change of heart? Thank you for Advent and giving us a chance to do this.